So I want to say thank you again for coming back. And I thought we'd start off with just me providing a bit of context for where we left off because that would be super remarks. helpful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So towards the end of that first conversation, and for anyone who's listening, if you haven't heard the first interview with Amari Nato, I would definitely recommend going back and listening to that first, even though it's a different topic that provides some good context. And towards the end of that conversation, you sort of left off with this paradox, which is on the one hand, meditation, Buddhism, awakening is pointing you towards this basic truth, which is that there's only awareness. There's no such thing as a self to be found. It's just this awareness. And that was really the one thing in which you could have faith or trust was the word you used. And that's true from one perspective, right? And then on the other hand, there's the reality that there is a personality to this self and we need an ego to move in the world. And that ego does have a personality that's been shaped by all these causes and conditions specific to each of our upbringings. And you talked about the importance of learning to work with and to accept this personality. And to that front, you were saying that you came to realize it was very important to do some kind of psychological work or some therapy along with spiritual practice. And so that's sort of the context I wanted to frame. And then you said on that note in particular, you said it's been really important yeah, to investigate how identity is formed and shaped. And so I was wondering if perhaps we could start off with this particular point. If you could say a little more about that is how did you come to realize that it's important to investigate how identity is formed and shaped? So uh, it's great to be back. So thank you. And I also reflected on the conversation last time and seeing that I pointed mainly only to awareness in that conversation. And I sort of wanted to deconstruct that a bit in a way, because that maybe that's helpful also to explore identity. Sure. So you can have like, so in the sort of way that I was speaking last time, it may have came across a bit in a teaching style, you know, rest in awareness, trust in awareness. So you can develop an identity, even a, a teaching identity or a guru identity or facilitator identity. And if you're not clear with where you're operating from, then usually it gets very messy. So I noticed like last time in the conversation, I said a lot about the monastery and sort of how good it was. But I didn't really say also how bad it was and how difficult it was for me. So it's a full spectrum in a way. It's a balance. And so being able to explore identity, you know, a monk is an identity. A meditator is an identity. Being a mindfulness practitioner is an identity. That's not awareness. Again, uh, this is a reflective approach. It's not dogmatic. I'm not saying everybody needs a psychotherapy. Everybody needs counseling. It's like, what do you need to understand who you are, you know, to recognize awareness? And the question is, what is awareness? So you can do a lot of talking about what it is without actually either describing it or even being able to recognize it. So some would say, you know, you need hours of meditation practice or this, that and the other. But I found the work of uh, Douglas Harding and he's pointing out experiments really effective for understanding what awareness is. So maybe we can just start on our basic identity, if you like. He would say our first person identity. So we can do it as an experiment. Maybe you want to join me. So maybe you just want to take your finger and point down towards the floor and just notice that there's a color and a shape and a tone. I've got a wooden floor. And then maybe you can point towards your feet. 
a foot and just notice the color of your shoe or your sock i've got a blue shoe on right now and then maybe you can point to your trousers and see that there's a my one i'm wearing jeans and then you can come up and point where you assume your face is and see what your finger is pointing to and what you are looking out of what your finger is pointing to and what you're looking out of so in my experience I don't see anything there. I don't see a shape or a quality or a color or my face. Maybe if you're wearing um, glasses, you might see something there, but you could just see where it's coming out of. So what I notice is I seem to be coming out of space, which has no quality even, no size, shape, color, anything, awareness itself. So for me, this is our true nature. And that's the end of the story, actually, if you recognize that that's it so we can do lots of talking about awareness and trying to point it out in terms of words or we can really just see it for ourselves there it is but uh you know if we point our finger outwards the other way towards the outside world we get the third person perspective we got the nothing and the everything and so being able to work and understand your personality through your essence your identity can be really helpful because we can confuse the two things We can confuse awareness for numbness and numbness for awareness. We can get really lost in all of that. So it's why it's important to get clear with basically what awareness is, what your true identity is, so that you can work from that place. So Douglas's work called it the little one, which I kind of like. And he wasn't so psychologically orientated, but I found in my monastic training, it was limited in a way because relationships didn't really come into it. And so operating relationally is the way also that our sankharas, our mental formations occur. They occur in relationship. So the more that I stayed at the monastery and the more that I entered into some group therapy there, the more that I could see the essence of that. And that's actually how I started running these family camps. I ran these very large family camps with 100 people, lots of facilitators. I ran it with a nun and we shared the space in that way, to hold the space. But what I found was that needing to understand our identity in a relational way was very important. And that was a big limitation of the monastic model, you know, the Theravada model, because it's based on solitary stuff. It's based on being a hermit, not really relating or, or being part of a community, although a lot of the rules say that. But in my experience, that didn't really happen that well. I'm curious, because you say the Theravada, and I certainly know that, I could see why that would be even more emphasized in Theravada, even versus, say, Mahayana or Tantric, which might encourage more deeper engagement, you know, with the world. But I'm curious, in your experience, do later models and schools of Buddhism do a better job at that, at the relational? Because I could see that being a fundamental problem to monasticism generally. Well, as we were talking about last time, you know, a lot of the imports of like mindfulness practice and that has come from the monastic scene and so mm-hmm. that that hasn't been addressed most of the problems that you see with mindfulness as it's being sold now is sold as an individualistic practice mm-hmm. without relationship i've got something wrong with my arm i'll be able to go and do a mindfulness course and that'll fix it mm-hmm. right but where's the other if you look at some of the other works around mindfulness it's an embodied enacted relational deeply relational dan siegel's work of defining the mind which is very important you know as along with the 40 other scientists it's interpersonal how can we separate ourselves from other people 
if you look back at what you're looking out of, can you find any division there? Can you find any separation? I can't. Mm -hmm. So we're intimately connected on a basic level, on our core level, if you like. And that can get translated into the way that we relate to one another. So I haven't seen much around this relational side. I've seen in Buddhist psychotherapy, that's different. You know, the Karuna mm -hmm. Institute, for example, in England, where the therapist came from, that came to the monastery, their approach, deeply relational, deeply Buddhist, but not monastic. And they've trained a whole load of core process psychotherapists. Yeah. And this goes back to that conversation from last time around to what extent are we running into problems importing this monastic model for people who are lay practitioners. And I know we want to be careful about talking, you know, not speaking generalities, but as you're noting right here, there are clear themes, right? When we're pulling from a, a model and a tradition that is monastic, and it, it does promote that solitary kind of hermit it can. archetype. Yeah. So the thing is, it, yeah, the thing is, it can, it doesn't have to. Right. Yeah. We see how it does show up that way. Exactly. Yeah. So the thing is, is to come back to your own experience and trust in that, and not what a model says. That's the Kalama Sutta in the Theravadan Buddhism, not what the guru says, not what the teacher says. It says, find out for yourself what it is. I mean, it was given to a certain audience. I know that. That's one of the criticisms of that sutta. You know, it was given to quite an ethical audience. But it's still about learning to trust yourself and what you need. And of course, learning from other people along the way. You know, I, I work with a lot of people that either got, you know, stuck in a non-dual experience, which they think is real, or they're trapped in a spiritual bypass, or, you know, they've meditated for so, you know, years and years and years and years, and still nothing's working for them. It looks good. It looks peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not criticism of them or the technique in a way. No, I think it's just to point out, you know, and one of my teachers, Vince Horn, pointed this out the other day. I was on a call with him. And, you know, he said, everything, of course, is going to have a trap because everything's different and everything might have a unique contribution, right? Something good about it. And those same things set it up for a potential trap and a pitfall. And he was outlining what he thought that was for Theravada, but it's also true for then non-dual schools have their own trap, right? Yes. And I mentioned Vince, so I, I should say one thing, and perhaps this can spark a discussion. I wanted to ask, besides Dan Siegel, like specifically what Buddhist teachers are you seeing who are teaching this in an innovative way? And I'll just give one example before I throw it over to you is I became kind of aware of this whole discussion because of a couple of my teachers and Vince was one of them. Kenneth Folk was another talking about having a lot of gratitude for their experience doing long retreat at places like IMS and Spear Rock and mentioning many of the good things can come from that. But also mentioning some criticisms about that, one of which was similar to what you said last time, because they'd spent time in monasteries in Asia. And they said, actually, if you're in a monastery in Asia, people aren't dead silent for three months. There's more talking going on. And the basic point was that people are social animals and we do need some contact And that when you're on something like a silent retreat, total silence for three months, you know, two, three months, there can be some dangers for some people, but even just for others, it's maybe not the optimal way to practice for householders. And so one solution that Kenneth developed out of that was he took the Mahasi Sayadaw noting style and he turned it into a social practice. So you go around in a group socially and you just use that same noting technique. 
And he came up with all these different ways and it's very innovative. And Vince, who's the host of the Buddhist Geeks podcast, teaches that. And I've participated in a number of those sessions. And it's just, it's really, really interesting. And having practiced and then done a retreat with Kenneth and Vince, where we, we had a part of the day, just one session maybe where we did a social meditation. I realized that actually it didn't take anything away from the power of the container and that it added a lot in terms of community and connection. And so that's just one example, but I don't see anyone else really doing that, like teaching in a more innovative relational way. And I'm curious, are you seeing any examples from Buddhist teachers or mindfulness teachers that are noteworthy on that front? To be honest, I'm not that interested anymore. So I don't know. I don't know who's doing what. I don't live in the Buddhist world. I don't live in the mindfulness world anymore. So mm. I, I really don't know. <laughs> Interesting, eh? Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. And I understand you not being interested because you did so much practice at this point. There's not You're not searching it out as much, I imagine. I'm not searching it at all. Yeah. I don't need it. That is a whole setup of that somehow it's outside of your experience. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got to go and get it from somebody else. You know, this is how identities are set up. So I notice when I look here with my finger, just as an example, point to my face, I don't see anything. That's it. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting pointing out technique of sorts. And the thing is, well, what identity comes from that? None. And yet we have to engage in the world. So any, mm -hmm. anybody can have this experience. Anybody can see this. How you use it and apply it, of course. That's a separate thing. So you can, of course, abuse the space or you can mimic it. You can say that you have it when you don't have it. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the gurus and teachers that are being weeded out because of this, because the, the work hasn't been done in the, in the personality, mm -hmm. sexual abuse and the, all the other financial abuse that we've seen is becoming more and more because actually more and more people are waking up and actually seeing for themselves what it is. Yeah. So perhaps as an example of this, like I want to talk about for you, when did you start to realize? So you're having, you'll have that pointing to that recognition of awareness and that's a profound shift. And yet it can be easy for some people to kind of hang out in that recognition or space for a while. And yet at some point, there's also this kind of recognition that... <laughs> <laughs> there's all these layers of identity or other aspects of the self that need tending to, or these other ways in which we're getting caught up. And you referenced, you talked last time about what was so great about being in the monastery, but didn't maybe see as much about what was difficult about that. And to the extent that you're sharing anything that you're comfortable sharing, I'm wondering if you can use that as perhaps an example as to how that made you perhaps aware of certain facets of personality or identity that Buddhism wasn't addressing. It's not Buddhism, really. Buddhism has got monastic. it all. Um, yeah, yeah. And to some degrees, even monastic has got it. It's the way that it's used and also how culture affects it. So you were saying about like with uh, in Asian culture, a lot of people are talking, but that's also why Buddhism was developed as being an individualistic practice because they're already socially aware, mm. right? And in the West, we're very good at being individuals, but we haven't had much training in community. So in the monastery, it w there was still all of that individualistic practice. But then, you know, we had uh, 30 or 40 nationalities. So how did we 
how do we speak to one another, you know, Eastern Europeans, Western Europeans. So I remember one example really clearly where we were learning MVC. And I remember handing a video of, about MVC over to one of the monastics and said, oh, you can watch that, for, you know, and then I'll have it back in a couple of weeks. And then I went back to get the video and actually ended up having an argument with them over an MVC video. MVC is nonviolent communication. Don't use this technique on me. That was the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so even though we, we tried pretty hard on that level, it was, you know, there was all sorts of different personalities and, and choices were made around that. And one of the big things that happened at Amravati was the, and it's public and on the internet, all over the internet, you know, around the, the monks and the nuns, how the nuns were treated and separated. And it's confusing. These issues are confusing, higher patriarchal systems and all of this stuff. And I, I've been reflecting on it in the last few days because we're in the, well, this is being recorded in the time of the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, There's a sutra in the Theravada and the fire sutra where everything is on fire. The sense is on fire. The world is on fire. And it feels a bit like that now. The world is on fire. And then I see what my response to it is. And I, I have this sense of that the world is on fire and to keep coming back to this place of awareness, to keep resting, trusting in that and not in the externals. And then there's another side of me that thinks, well, there's these politicians and, you know, this system and it needs changing and all the rest of it. But everybody's sort of made their choice in it and somehow it's emerging. It's a complex system. So when I reflect back at my time in the monastery as well and I see some of the responses from the monks, part of me can sort of understand it, can say, well, you know, this is the system and all the rest of it. And then on another part of my system is completely outraged that, how could you treat a fellow human being, whatever the gender, in such an awful way? How do you learn to reconcile those different voices? Because you can rest in awareness, yes. right? But then, and that's powerful. But then, and this is the work of psychology. At a certain level, we want to engage in the world. We want to use the mind to attempt to integrate these different parts of the personality or try to use reason to work through these. I mean, it's, it's difficult to even discuss how to frame it, but yeah. No, get, how it's you... clear. It's clear. It's, it's discriminative wisdom, right? Like if you yeah. come from a place or if you come from awareness, yeah, then it can come through you. Yeah. But if your filter's a little bit dirty, then there's always going to be a problem. Mm. Right. So, make, you know, helping to make the filter a little bit more clear or if you've got a very strong mind to throw the filter out completely. I saw some teachers that are able to do that. Usually they've got very good samadhi practice. So they treat the mind as an object and just completely sidestep it. But there's always a problem, you know, with that because you have to go back into relationship. And so then the, the personality can get triggered again. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. So but it's still within awareness. And this is why I have found to work in a sort of a psychological way so helpful because the models are pretty good. You know, they are good. They are quite clear. And some of the newer ones are very clear, you know. And in the West, we have Piaget's model of self-development and in Russia, and we have Vygotsky, Vygotsky. And, you know, he was much more about a social way of learning, a social interaction. So in the West, we developed a very uh, linear model of the way children develop. In the Russian way, it was much more socially orientated, the group of people that you're around. And so, we've, you know, again, even within the psychological models, there can be, could be conflict. But the thing is, you can use these models to understand yourself better. Donald Winnicott was a great English psychologist, and he would say, good enough parenting. So sort of, you, all you want is good enough. You want a personality that's good enough. 
yeah, that you can see some of your blocks. But if you're putting yourself in the position of a teacher, a facilitator, a lead of a community, then you better be really clear on it. You better be really clear on it. And that's why I chose partly to do executive coaching because I wanted to work with leaders that would have impact on other people. Yeah, and I wanted them to be clear on it, either being as a supervisor to other facilitators or a mentor or whatever, because I've been in that position so much myself about how you use that. And you have to get really clear with your personality. You have to really know yourself inside out. What's your lust like? You work with teenage women. You know, I'm a guy, right? So you work with teenage girls, you know, young women. You better know about your sexuality, Mm -hmm. right? In whatever way it is, whatever it's embodied, so that you can help them to flourish. You want them to be an embodied, young, beautiful in whatever way that means to them, an engaged member of society, right? And that means being able to really address your own internal desires and needs and be honest with them. You know, if you're, mm-hmm. I was a child protection officer at the monastery, you know, again, in a supervision session, you look at, well, how are you abusive? Mm. These are not pleasant things to look at. <laughs> mm. You know, you've done all yeah. this loving kindness practice or, but it's really important the way archetypes work, how they steward energy and how they can overtake you. And they're sort of there a little bit in the cosmology we never really reflect on the Buddha's story that much, I don't think. We, we tell it as a story. I don't know if it's true or not. But as a mythology, even it's very good because it, this is a, a person. One, he was born really rich and had access to good education. But he was educated in a lot of different areas and that they, you're not told exactly what they were. So actually he had quite a formed personality before he was a renouncing even. A lot of us didn't get that type of education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we might have been lucky enough to get two carers, two parents, but we may not have done. Not to say one parent is also can do an amazing job as well. You mentioned something about the way archetypes work and the way they can overtake you. Perhaps we should just take a moment for people who aren't familiar with the idea of an archetype, just a brief explanation of what you mean by that so people who don't know can understand and oh, okay. then can say, what do you mean by how they can overtake you? And perhaps you can give an example. Yeah, I can give you a simple, a worldly example of that. And that's uh, Harry Potter. Okay. Most of us have read Harry Potter by the amount of books that have been sold around the world. Why is it that we're so attracted to Harry Potter and that story? Because it holds certain archetypal energies, right? And it was written from what I can see, my value judgment on it. It was written with that. It came through with that energy. So we resonate with a story that's been held collectively somewhere in the ether. I mean, not as a set of words, but maybe as some sort of energy that we can tap into. If you're a monastic, when you do the chanting in Theravadan Buddhism, it's been recited sort of for quite a number of years, you know, hundreds, maybe even a thousand plus years. And it comes with a certain energy to it and archetypes. So when you're reading Harry Potter, suddenly you can be taken over by the Dementor or by by Harry himself and his magician energy, and you feel sort of not quite yourself. That's the archetypal forces that are around. And there's different types of them available. And that you could say that even the monk is an archetype. And that when you start to wear the robes, you get all the other monks or nuns that have been in that tradition for centuries. Yeah, you get that energy for free. You don't have to think about it too much. And uh, we've lost really access to that. And this is very important when you're in a leadership role or a psychotherapist role or an artist, these energies can overtake us. 
And by being able to disconnect from them, we can again come back to who we are. Otherwise, somebody else is running the show. You know, when you get lost in that story, a Harry Potter story, you start becoming the Dementor. It's easy actually to operate out of that space. I always use the Dementor because they're the people that suck energy out of us. It's like depression. It's also trying not to mix the levels of the absolute and the relative. They're two separate things. Therapy does not work in the absolute, and the absolute doesn't particularly work that well in the personality. But together, they're super powerful. Super powerful. Yeah. Perhaps you can say a little something. I'm curious. You know, you mentioned monk as an archetype, and there's a certain energy that you assume when you, you put on those robes. And I've heard people talk about that, you know, both the power of it and also for some people, there's a weight to it as well that can be difficult to bear or difficult yeah, to bear. At and I'm curious if you could say something about sort of the light, powerful aspects of it and also maybe the, the shadow side of that from your own personal yeah, yes, right. Yeah, sure. So when I became a monk, yeah, a novice monk, I felt that I just started again my whole life. Actually, I felt it was my first real birth. It was that powerful. I, you change out of your clothes your lay clothes, you put on the robes, and that's it. You start a completely different life with a different name and an opportunity just to start life from scratch again, in a way. And there, there is a power to it. And it's particularly with a, well, I was going to say particularly with the Theravadan robes, but it's probably for all monks. But I, I, I mean, my own experience putting on those robes and then going out and either going begging on the street or walking through London or wherever I was in the world, there's a certain, yeah, it's really amazing. But the idea of the robes is still a vehicle towards awareness, to emptiness. Because if you believe anything that anybody puts on you, yeah, you're going to get in a lot of trouble because you'll never be able to deal with the power. Mm. That's how it corrupts you. That's how you see monks corrupted because, you know, you can get lots of money, you can get lots of fame, and all the monks' rules, the monastic rules, are about protecting you from that in a way. They do and they don't, as you can clearly see. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And so the negative, the shadowy sides of it is, of course, when you put on those roads, you put on a tradition as well. And that's what I came up against in the end. You come up against a tradition that's 2,000 plus years old. So you get all that baggage. And that's a lot to hold as a single person. Maybe as a group, you can navigate it a bit. But as a single person, to go against that is pretty difficult. What did you bump up against specifically? Yeah, what do you mean in the end you came up against that? What really started to... Well, because I was sort of been trying to be polite in a way, but, you know, I was very creative and innovative in what I did, the workshops that I ran, because I was combining awareness practice with psychotherapy. And I had a supervisor, I still have a supervisor, to watch over my work, and it upset a lot of people, basically. Yeah. Some people couldn't handle it. Some people were really jealous. Some people said I wasn't, you know, monks shouldn't do that. And at that point, really, there was not much I could do, really. (laughs) That's, you know, and so part of the energy of disrobing when I was on this three-month retreat in Australia was probably in my unconscious, there was probably those forces going on as well. Because I read two books on that retreat, and one was about community belonging, and the other one was about human development. So I had this style of doing a three-month retreat where in the first week, because I was so busy, I just allowed myself to wind down into a retreat, not just go switch on one day and switch off the next day. I've never found that really helpful. So I would say all those forces were too strong for a single person to deal with. And so I thought, well, better to take it out of that realm, really. 
that makes total sense, you know, and that's, I know we wanted to talk about sort of Buddhism beyond identity or, you know, and we did last time we talked about as a vehicle, you know, rather than the doctrine itself. And and that's where it really, it gets to this idea. There's the power of tradition and lineage, which is absolutely unmistakable and has to be honored. And it's also the nature of any kind of institution that provides that kind of structure and authority. It's also oppressive is the shadow side of that as well. It's dogmatic. And it depends on the leadership and it depends on how you're setting yourself up as a leader. If you're setting yourself up as a leader and a teacher that never empowers anybody to get better insight than yourself, then you're stuffed. Mm -hmm. That's a cult. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to start off with the experiment of making us on, on equal level. If you recognize who you are right now, you see this space, that's it. We are equal, right? Maybe my experience can be helpful to you, you know, what I've learned as a monk and what I'm learning now. But the actual awareness, not mine, not yours, not anybody's, not for me to hold on to and put in a sacred box somewhere, not to put on a shrine, not to worship, not to say you'll get it in 10 years' time or some other stuff. Here it is, right here, right now. End of story. Well, that point you raised, I mean, and absolutely true, clearly, you know, how personalities and unresolved issues when you have individuals coming together in community can lead to these hierarchies and potential problems and power dynamics. And as you said, cult-like behavior, you know, but it, it also raises the question that I think many critics of religion in general have is what is the distinction between a cult and religion? You know, it's... Uh, that's very... That's the point. My point is just in agreement with you. First of all, we can very clearly define a number of what we would say would be cult-like behaviors, right? Yes, that's, and that's right. Clear. But on the other hand, I'm just pointing to the fact that there really is a fine line a lot of times there can be between a cult and religion. I mean, or you could say not just religion, right? Many other organizational. Yes, a cult basically traps you into a system and says you can't read any other books. You can only follow me. That's it. I am the way. Right. That's a cult, really, for me. And I didn't actually experience that at the monastery. I must say, I didn't feel I was a cult at all because it was always open. I could do whatever I wanted there, within reason, of course, with respect to the monastic rules. But I could read what I want, pretty much, again, with respect to the rules. So I wasn't forced in any way to do that. I made the agreement. I signed up to become a monk. But if the teacher says, you know, it's my way or the highway type of thing, well... I'd ask yourself, why are you involved in that? Absolutely. You know, or it's outrageously priced. When I joined the monastery, of course, you give up your funds, you give up your money. But there was a conscious, it was clearly stated to me what I was doing. I didn't give the money to the monastery. I didn't have to. And actually, they said, don't do that. And this is why it's re- it is really, I think at this particular time, it is really important to be able to distinguish. You know, the word religion, isn't it? It means to bind to something religious. But what are you actually binding to? Are you binding to a form or are you binding to what it's actually pointing to? Mm-hmm. How do you use form? I must say, I really learned that at Amravati. I really did learn that off uh, Ajahn Sumedho, how to use form. Yeah, not rigid, but fluid. And what goes with form is, of course, emptiness. Emptiness and form, form and emptiness. This dynamic dance. For people who might not be familiar with some Buddhists, Dr. I'm sure most people are, and and not going into anything deep like emptiness, just asking to explain a little bit when you use the phrase, how to use form, or that you learned from a jar and tomato, how to use form. Can you say in a little more detail what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, sure. 
So let's take a form. Let's take a jacket, for example. You know, you wear a jacket. You can say, I only wear a jacket, this particular jacket on a Friday or a Saturday or when I go dancing or when I meet my girlfriend or partner, whatever it is. Yeah, and you can be very rigid about that. You can say, I only wear this blue jacket on that day. Right, that's a sort of form. Doing that makes you very rigid in your thinking and the way that you behave in the world. What happens if your girlfriend doesn't like it or if that jacket doesn't work on that day? So what I learned was a more fluid approach to wearing the jacket, like don't need to wear it today or I can wear it, rather than being in a very black and white. It's always like this or it's always like that. There's a whole area of grey and that's the fluidity. And if we can have that in our mindset, in our approach to life, it makes it so much more enjoyable, livable, relatable, because that's how we can relate to uh, one another in a more kind and generous way. Yeah, that's very clear. That's very clear. That's helpful. Thank you. I think one question that, again, all these paradoxes. um, (laughs) Life is paradox. (laughs) These paradoxes. And that's the fun part is learning to get comfortable with that creative tension, right? Rather than seeing it as a problem, the black and white thinking, right? That's it. So last time when you talked about the importance of learning to accept this personality and radical acceptance, One thing that I, a creative sort of tension or paradox that I'm always trying to sit with is on the one hand, there's this importance of radical acceptance. Yes. Right. And this personality has been deeply shaped over years by causes and conditions. And we're even born with a certain temperament and all these things. And then on the other hand, we know that we don't want to get caught into a fixed mindset, but instead have a growth mindset. Not sure if you're familiar with Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we know that it's important to have a growth mindset. We know that it's important that if we say, oh, this is just how I am, we'll never improve. And yet I do think as much as I also respect Kildrick's research, we can also, we could come up with many examples that point to a limitation of that. You're not going to become a mathematical genius just because of a growth mindset, right? People like that born with certain causes and conditions. They are outliers in terms of IQ and things like that, to use one extreme example. And and if you could maybe just talk about how you work with that creative tension in terms of your personality, what you've learned to work with, and then what you learn to accept, how you do that dance, that might be helpful. Yeah. Just before that, I just want to say something about also working with personality and what's important in terms of a meditative practice. So when you've got something that comes up in your meditation and it keeps coming up and it keeps repeating and it keeps repeating and your concentration or your level of insight, it's not working and it keeps repeating, then that's probably in the psychological realm, Mm. right? And so that's a way of being able to work in a way with growth and fixed mindset. Yeah, and hold the paradox of when do I need to change things? Right, there's certain things about your personality, about my personality, that probably aren't going to totally change. I've been willing to accept them. Yeah, that that's just the way that I am, and I notice it. And maybe 20, 30, no, 40 <laughs> years ago, that would have caused me a really lot of suffering, and I might have been very unwell for a long period of time. And now it's just like it's a few seconds, and I think, oh, that's interesting. Here it is again. Right. And there's other ones in my personality that that come up. And I think, well, I ought to take that to my therapist or I ought to explore that one. And so it's still coming from this place of attention and awareness to see what is really needed. I'll give you a clear example. 
So when I disrobed, I hadn't done any form of sales or marketing for decades, right? So I had no idea how to do that. So I just went back into what I knew. And then I realized, why am I acting like this? This is what I would have done 20 years ago. I never did this as a monk. Why am I doing it now? Right. And then I started to unpack that and say, oh, yeah, that's because I've never had to use this particular part of my system before. And then take that into therapy or, you know, and just see, oh, okay, I see. So it's connected to this or just sit with it, just hold it. And then suddenly it unpacks itself, you know, and you just you're able to hold that experience and unpack the conditioning process and it arises. That's when you get your growth again. So it's, again, coming back to trying to trust and also putting yourself in a relational journey with somebody, whether it's a good friend or somebody more professional. You know, and having somebody a bit more professional gives you the ability to have good boundaries, which is really important in terms of change. So it is a paradox. And the more that you can rest in awareness, the, the, the more that these tight groups of conditioning just shake loose by themselves. It can be very wobbly. You know, I was just on the phone with a client just now, just before this, and we've been working uh, quite intensively for a while, and there was a real sense of wobble going on. And I was saying, well, why would it be any different? You've done all this work to loosen up all these bits. Yeah, you're, you're bound to experience some type of wobble. And can you just be kind to yourself in that process? That's my approach in a way, the playful monk approach. Explore what's going on. Yeah, co-exploration. Make it playful. Where you place your attention, play is where is fully having full attention on what you're doing and then love you know being kind to yourself being kind to others so it is a paradox about how much you do to develop yourself but you normally getting signals back from who you're around and the situations you encounter and having awareness first is such a tremendous help most people assume that awareness is the end journey but that's not how it was taught to me and, and shared in the monastery it's the starting place of life not the end it's where you really become alive. And that's my encouragement. Sort that one out. Recognize who you are. It's such a relief. But most of the people I work with come through personality things, you know, so I work there. But it's not to get stuck in changing people's personalities until they're some sort of super ideal, superman or superwoman. Just want good enough. Yeah, that is seemingly just one of the biggest misconceptions that we see in the meditation world or spiritual world. It's it's bound up in a lot of ideas of perfection, right? And of course, we see this in religious traditions again and again, because it's a fundamental psychological desire that's being projected on the religions, right? It's these perfectionist ideals, these perfectionist tendencies. And I think that does a number in particular on Westerners who are already told, but given this individualist story, right? Where it's a lot about striving and certain things that are achievements for the ego, and then it's not rooted in the sense of community, right? So that perfectionism, which is an innate part of the human psyche, sort of shows up in a, it seems a particularly destructive way in Western culture. Curious what you think of that or what you see in terms of your clients. And yeah. So when I reflect on perfectionism, the only place you can be perfect is in awareness. It is perfect. But what is it that wants to be perfect, that thinks it's not whole, that thinks there's a problem? that thinks it needs to be fixed. Exactly. That's the ego. That's the yeah. ego. Yeah, but the thing is, it's actually trying to get you home. Yes. <laughs> so we get it confused with the relative. So we put it in the relative, I've got to be perfect, rather than recognizing you are perfect. Yes. 
And as you said, we do have a culture which is you can't be vulnerable or authentic or, you know, I mean, it's becoming Brené Brown has done such a fantastic job of empowering so many million people to do that. And why is it she's so popular? Because deep down we know it's true. And why is it true? Because it's based on connection. That's what she said. That's what her research says. And the reason that the message gets confused is because, of course, or at least for me, in, in religion, yeah, the perfectionism, yeah, gets interpreted on the personality level. And even some teachers then assume it's on the personality level to be pure at that level. And maybe, I don't know, because I haven't met anybody like that, but, you know, in the Buddhist text, they say you can become completely like that. You know, the Samasambuddha, a person that's really worked on their personality as well, not just on awareness. I don't know about that. What I do know is that as far as I've seen, perfectionism in the relative world, in the world of personality, is just setting you up for suffering. <laughs> Completely. You might as well just, you get more pleasure out banging your head against the wall. Yeah. At least there'd be some relief after you stop banging your head against the wall. You know, and I, I'm not trying to belittle people that have that. You know, I've certainly seen it when I've been running my uh, young people and creative retreats in Asia. There's a strong cultural message. But I'm sure if you actually trace it back and you actually look, it's coming from the marketing message of religion, of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So again, it says, what is the quality of the person that's sharing the message? Are they browbeating you into, you've got to be perfect, yeah? Or are they, are they encouraging you to see you are already perfect? It's a very different message. One says, follow me and what I say is true. And the other one says, find it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. Also, I've worked in a lot of private schools as well, you know, and there's a high level of perfectionism. But the problem with that is they're never set up for failure. Mm. Where I work in the business world, failure is a hugely important thing. The quicker you can fail, the quicker you can learn. You want to be set up for failure rather than perfectionism. Yeah, and these things very much vary by culture. I mean, that attitude, wanting to fail as fast as possible so you can learn, I mean, that bumps up against very huge cultural hurdles in Asia with things like saving face. and Yeah, exactly. And yet the greatest of these uh, in the business world anyway came from those cultures. There's that cultural aspect to it. And then there's the deeper aspect, this awareness side of it that somehow got enculturated in those societies and then got lost. So you've got that sort of cultural level of awareness, but really don't know what it is. Mm. And that's why having a meditative practice to start with can be really helpful because it brings you back into the body and starts to see, well, oh, this is what the subject object thing is. For me, awareness, another way of saying awareness is pure subjectivity. Yes. And I think Dan Goleman does a really, a lot of important work in helping people to translate that, to put it in modern psychological language. I mean, like you were saying earlier at one point, it's through relationship that we start being able to recognize the signs. But of course, we need awareness to be able to recognize the signs. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you need somebody usually in the beginning just to say, hey, that's it. You don't need much of it, but you do need, usually you need somebody. There's some people that can recognize it totally for themselves, but usually we need a help of somebody else. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise we get caught in that perfectionist thing again, where we confuse the message with the medium, as some marketing guy would say. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, hey, on that note, on the importance of mentorship and having a coach, because I'm conscious of our time and needing to wrap up, I, yeah. I want to give you a chance to share with our audience a bit about your business and the services that you offer. 
Great. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. So what I do is I help people stay calm and connected in complex situations so they can awaken to their true potential. And I do that as a mindfulness-based executive coach, as an agile mindset coach, as a leadership coach, leadership trainer. I also work with people, you know, with meditators and people that are really stuck in their practice and that really want to understand who they are. I really like working with people like that or if they're stuck in a cult or some, you know, all of that. So it's quite broad area. Um, my website is playfulmonk.net. Excellent. Well, Maranata, thank you so much. These were two really interesting conversations. I enjoyed both of them. So thank you so much for being generous with your time. Oh, and I'm really appreciative of, of such good questions and your thoughtfulness. It really comes through that you've really been able to really reflect and inquire on these questions yourself. So I appreciate it as well. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, let's stay in touch and talk soon. Yeah, great. Thank you.